You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Good morning, church. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's passage is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Thanks be to God. God of the nations, we know that you have a heart for all people and you long for the day and you will bring and you promise that you will bring about the day on which you will make all things new. And so as we look and we behold this vision of eternity, we pray that you would stir something deep in our hearts, that however hard life might be, however hard it might be to persevere and keep going, that we might see that great destination, that great eternity towards which you're taking us and so motivate us by that vision. And we pray these things all for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, just the other day, um, a Facebook memory popped up. Uh, I wonder, you know, when that pops up for you, whether you click on it, for those of you uh, old enough to still use Facebook, apparently. Uh, And it was that moment from about this time last year where our city was going into our fourth lockdown. Remember that? I mean, when you think about it, it was a pretty brutal two years, wasn't it? Families were separated. Loved ones died, relationships broke apart, and people fell into really dark places. And when you look back at those two years, you've got to wonder how we got through it all. And if you don't mind me suggesting, I don't think it's all just because of vaccines as important as they are. No, I suspect that many of us lasted through lockdown because we had hope. We had hope. 
I mean, think about it, right? What else would motivate you to watch the Premier's daily press conference, right? It's not because you love politics. Some of you do. Some of us have such an affliction. But because we long for better days to come. We long for hope. But let's face it, even though we're out of lockdown now, even though for many of us, I know COVID's becoming a distant memory of the past, life still isn't that easy, is it? I mean, look around. Our world is still full of disappointment, depression and despair. Lockdown hasn't changed that. Marriages still fail. Families still break apart. And as we've heard over and over again over the last four weeks, in the end, all of us, all of us will one day die. No, lockdown didn't create so much, didn't so much as create a new problem as it only highlighted the problems that we always face. Ecclesiastes is right, yeah? Absolute futility. Everything is futile. But we don't want to deal with our problems. It's much easier to not deal with our problems. What do we do? We anesthetize ourselves with work, with sex, with pleasure, so we don't have to feel the pain. No, the truth is, it's not just in lockdown, no, each and every day. We need hope now just as much as we needed it then. You know, Revelation, this letter, it was written to a people doing it tough, doing it far tougher than we ever will. Christians in the first century were being brutally persecuted by the Roman Empire. They weren't just being locked down, no, they were being locked up. If anyone needed hope, surely it was them. And so the Apostle John writes this letter to instill that hope. He, he casts a vision of eternity that will keep these Christians going when the going gets tough. And in these final chapters of Revelation, John paints a picture so beautiful, so vivid, so compelling about the day on which God will fix every problem, the day on which He will right every wrong, the day on which... He will make all things new. John wants us Christians to see the hope of eternity so that we can keep on living for Jesus when life is hard. And I know it is for so many of you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know John has a message for you as well. He wants you to see the hope of eternity, but he's inviting you to be part of it. He wants you to know that one day God will renew our world. God will return to his people. And guess what? God is making you an offer you simply can't refuse. You don't have to be a Christian, though, to realize that something is wrong with our world. Whether it's fire, famine or flood, our world's broken. It was never meant to be that way. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He, he created this whole world to be a good place, teeming with life and love. A world where God, humanity and all creation are at perfect peace. You see, God created this world and he saw that it was good. But I don't know if you've realized, but you know, there are some people in life, and I profess I may be one of those people, they always have a way of stuffing up a good thing. And that's what we humans are like. 
Instead of playing our part in the world that God created, what did we do? We rebelled against him. We rejected him. We brought this whole world under his curse. That's why Romans 8.22 says, the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together with labor pains until now. You see, friends, our world was created to be good, but our world is cursed and it longs to be set free. Our world longs to be set right. We all know it in our hearts, don't we? We all know that something's wrong with our world. That's why so many of us devote our whole lives, our whole careers to trying to fix it. We clean up our oceans. We protect our our forests. We cut our emissions. All good things to do. But I don't know if you've realized, no matter how many times we try to fix our world, we just can't do it, can we? Our world is sick beyond cure. And our world is broken beyond repair. Some of you may have seen and may know about the Japanese art of kintsugi, which takes broken pottery and pieces it back together with gold. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful if you've seen it. But but our world is not like a broken bowl that can somehow be repaired with gold. No, our world, it is the priceless possession of the Creator God that we have shattered by our sin. And all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put our world back together again. But God can. And God will. That's the picture that John paints in verses 1 and 2. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's good news. It means that this world, with with all of its disappointment, depression and despair, one day, it'll finally be over. That's what John means when he says that there will be no more sea. He's not speaking literally, he's speaking symbolically. You see, throughout the Bible, the sea represents the forces of evil and chaos and disorder and darkness. So if the sea will one day be no more, That's the sign of a world in which evil, death and darkness will be no more. And in the place of this broken world, look at what John sees. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You know, I wonder what you think about when you think about heaven. When you think about eternity, what what are the pictures that come to mind? So often when we think about heaven, we might imagine floating spirits in a soul society. But that's not the new world that God is bringing about. God isn't taking us up to heaven. No, Notice, He's bringing heaven down to earth. Have you thought about that? That in eternity, there will be something beautifully familiar about that new world. Just like our world. The new heavens and the new earth will be physical, tangible, material. It will be this world, but perfected into everything that God created it to be. It will be a world where the rivers run clean. The air is fresh. The the land is fertile. It will be a world where God, humanity and all creation once again live in perfect peace. Isn't that the world that all of us long for? Well, it's the world that God will one day bring about. 
But I want you to see what sits at the center of this new world. In this great new world, what sits at its heart? At the center of this new creation will be a new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You know, earlier this year when the Russian forces were advancing on Ukraine, no one ever thought that they would attack Kiev, right? No one thought they'd attack the nation's capital, the seat of power, the source of strength. For so many Ukrainians, Kiev, that was the place of safety. Most people knew that Donbass in the east would fall, but not Kiev. That, that was the place where when Donbass fell, everyone fled. They fled to the capital because they knew that that was the city of safety. As long as Kiev stands, so does Ukraine. And we praise God that it still does. Well, it wasn't so different for the Jewish Christians in the first century. You see, for them, as long as Jerusalem stood, so did Israel. Jerusalem was their city of safety. It was the city of their God. And just like Kiev, no one ever expected that Jerusalem would fall. Until it did. Until it did, because in 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Vespasian launched an all-out ground assault on Jerusalem, and he burned the temple to the ground. I just can't begin to imagine what the Jewish Christians must have felt. Maybe they might have felt something like Ukrainians today would feel if they knew Kiev had finally been overtaken. Olympus has fallen, our nation is defeated, we're no longer safe in this world. But then, right, then, imagine that out of those ruins, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride for her husband. From a position of great despair, great lament, great sadness, imagine his joy now, his amazement, his sudden confidence. To see that the city that was once destroyed, God will rebuild forever. This is beautiful. Because later in his vision, John will see that the gates to this city, they will never close by day. Because it will never be night there. You know what that means? Why why, Why do we lock our doors at night? Why do we close our gates at night? Why do we invest hundreds of dollars into house alarms, CCTV cameras, and motion sensor video doorbells? Because our world is not safe. But in the new creation, our doors will never be locked. The gates of the city will never be closed. It's an introvert's nightmare. But it will be a city of ultimate safety. There will be no more sin. No more danger, no more reason to lock our doors at night. We will be safe in the city of God forever. You know, when you look at our world, with all of its dangers, its violence and conflict, don't you long for a world like that? I've said it multiple times before, but so often, right, watching the news is is just a really depressing experience. Watching the news these days, it's almost like, you know, you see the person, you see the news anchor, they say good evening and they proceed to tell you exactly why it's not. They just introduce every problem that's in the world. And then what happens, when I was a kid, I realized they'd do the local news about the rabid dog down the street 
then they would do the global news of terror and war and famine and strife. And then, of course, being in Australia, what comes after? Sport. It just tells you everything about it, doesn't it? We can't sit with the horrors of this world. But one day, that news segment, it'll be no more. There'll only be stories of safety, stories of joy, stories of fulfillment and glory to report on. We, we one day will live in a world of eternal security, a world where death will be no more. I don't know about you, I, I can't wait for that world. I can't wait for that world. Do you feel that longing? When was the last time you longed for something like that? I know in this room right now, there's at least six people, if not more, who know that feeling of longing. Because in just a few weeks, three couples in our church will be getting married. I want you to imagine it for a moment, right? You can pick your couple. I'll pick on one right now. There is Claudia, standing at the chapel door. Every eye will be on her as she stands in, in all her radiant beauty. And she takes her first step. Right here, there is Hall, standing there, waiting with bated breath as the weight of eight very long years of dating bear down on this one moment. We all know longing, don't we? Friends, the passage tells us that is but a snapshot of the anticipation that all creation has for the day on which the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven from God. All of human history is waiting for the moment when God will renew our world forever. Don't we all share in that longing? Isn't there a deep intuition in all of us that says, this world just isn't the way it's meant to be? We see virus and violence, disease and death, and something in us protests. That isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. C.S. Lewis once wrote, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Friends, that is the world that God is bringing about. A world where wars will cease, sickness will end, and death will be no more. I don't know about you, I, I just can't read Revelation 21 without tears coming to my eyes and longing so desperately for that world. But believe it or not, God won't just renew our world, good, that though, good though that will be. He will do something even greater. You see, on that day, God, on the day that God renews this world, He will return to His people. He will return to His people. I want you to imagine for a moment a young woman who's buying her first home. She finds it. It's this beautiful, large, four-bedroom mansion in the leafy inner east. It has all the furnishings she's ever wanted. The induction cooktop, the third bathroom, the extra guest room, and of course, that spacious, spacious ensuite. The day comes for her to move into her dream home. With great excitement, she unpacks all her belongings, she arranges all her furniture, and she sits there in her large, beautiful four-bedroom house. 
alone. No friends, no family, no loved ones. Just her in a hollow heaven. You see, we all know that what makes a house a home is not brick and mortar, right? It's the people we love. And believe it or not, as beautiful a vision as the new heavens and the new earth are, it's a hollow heaven unless God is in it. What will make the new heavens and the new earth our true home is not that new world. It's that we get to be with God forever. You see, a heaven, however beautiful, without God can be no heaven at all. And that's what we see in verse 3. See, the whole point of this new creation, is so that God might dwell with us forever. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. It's beautiful, right? And He will live with them. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God dwelt with His people in tents and temples, in something called a tabernacle. And that tabernacle, it represented the presence of God. Whenever the Israelites set up that tent, it would be a sign that God dwelt among his people. But there was one big problem. Not everyone could enter that tabernacle. No one was ever truly holy enough to approach our God. You see, God may have dwelt among his people, but his people couldn't freely come before their God. But John 3 tells us in verse 13, that, uh, verse 3, that one day, This is what the passage literally says, God's tabernacle will be with humanity and he will tabernacle with them. Can you see what John is saying? Uh, The whole point of God renewing our world is so that God might return to his people. When we join God in that new creation, we're not moving into an empty house. No, we're returning, to our, to our, we're returning to our eternal home. We're coming back to God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And in verse 7, not only will we be his people, we'll be his daughters and sons as well. We'll be adopted into God's family forever. If you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think about this picture of God. Some people seem to think that God is distant and and unloving, that he's uncaring, that he's always somehow waiting for us to come crawling back to him in shame. But can you see in this vision that, that no, God is a God who comes to us. He's a God who brings heaven to us. Gosh, in Jesus, he's a God who left his throne in heaven entered our world, a God who sought us out and found us. He's a God who left all the glories of heaven so that he might know us and so that he might love us. You see, one day God will renew this whole world also that he might love us forever. Let me tell you about a girl called Janet. Uh, Janet's dad, he, he loved her more than anything or anyone in the entire world. He he spent a whole year and millions of dollars 
building this large, beautiful, four-bedroom mansion, all for his daughter, just so that they could live in it together. Few dads could love their little girl like that. But Janet, she didn't love her dad. He loved her, but she didn't love him. In fact, she took from him, stole from him. Gosh, she loved the mansion, but she didn't love her dad. One day, her dad comes home from work. His daughter's favourite meal in hand, ready to share a meal with her in their new home together. But when he walks through the doors, she's gone. She's run away from home. She's disowned her own dad. A few days pass, but in her anger, Janet still refuses to come home. But as days become weeks, she started to feel guilty. And as much as she thought she hated her dad, she strangely found herself missing him. So she packed her things, ran home as fast as she could. She burst through the door of that beautiful mansion and calls out, Dad! But the mansion's empty and her dad is gone. And so Janet sits there in the middle of this beautiful but empty mansion, surrounded by wealth and every precious possession you could ever want. And she weeps. Because you see, the most beautiful mansion without her dad was nothing but a hollow heaven. But I want you to rewind for a moment. Imagine, though, that when Janet bursts through the front door, she sees her dad, runs into his arms, and in that beautiful mansion, surrounded by every precious possession that her dad has purchased, bought, and prepared for her, he welcomes her home, forgives her sin, and wipes her tears away. You see, as beautiful as that mansion might be, what makes it her home, what makes it heaven, is that she is reconciled with her father. You see, friends, one day God will bring heaven to earth. And when he does, he will remake this world as our heavenly home. He will welcome us through the front door. He will show us into that beautiful mansion that he's prepared for us. But all of that doesn't really matter. He'll take us into his arms. He'll forgive our every sin. And he'll wipe our tears away. Finally, finally we'll be at home with God, our Heavenly Father. Some of you here know what it's like to shed what feels like far too many tears. And sometimes it can feel like your days of sorrow outnumber your days of joy. Life isn't what you thought it would be. You grieve the loss, the absence, the breaking apart of friends, of marriage or children. You despair as you watch parents or grandparents age, grow, grow frail and die. Or maybe, sometimes, you're so sad that you have no idea why. And all you feel is that you're all alone, scared, and just overwhelmed by the darkness of this life. John wants you to know that one day, all of that will pass. 
Verse 4, death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain, it'll be no more because the first things, what are they? The first heaven, the first earth, this world with all of its darkness, it will have passed away. Not long ago, I was talking to one of my uh, good friends and she told me, Adam, years ago, you don't know this, but I, I felt a loneliness so deep that it physically hurt. And one Saturday afternoon, I just lay there in my room and cried. She said to me, do you know the worst part about loneliness? Is that in your loneliness, there's never anyone there to comfort you. It's the whole point, right? Maybe you know that pain. Gosh, many of you know pain far greater than even my friends. And maybe like her, sometimes you feel like there's no one there to comfort you. You read Ecclesiastes 4 where the teacher says, look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one, no one to comfort them. But John says, no, we do. For one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We do have someone to comfort us. And one day he'll bring heaven to earth, he'll renew our world, he'll return to his people and he'll welcome us home forever. That beats the most beautiful mansion this world could ever offer. You see, our greatest treasure is not heaven. Our greatest treasure is to have God as our Father forever. Look, I get it. If life is hard for you right now, if you feel like you're in the pits and the depths of despair, it's going to be pretty hard to believe that this future is even possible. You might look at it and go, Adam, that's great. Theoretical. Fairy tale. Not going to happen. The wonders of the Lord Jesus is he knows exactly what we think. Well, read verse 5. These words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say about the future, I will do it. He says, it is done. You see, Jesus has already secured our eternal hope. And we can wait in anticipation for that day and that eternity of joy. Because as sure as night follows day, Jesus has already done it. He's lived the perfect life for us and so secured our adoption as children of God. He, he's borne our curse and so he's broken the curse that hangs over our world. He died in our place. He purchased our forgiveness so that we can come home to God forever. There's nothing left for you to do. God will renew our world. He'll return to his people and guess what? He's already done it in Jesus. And now, friends, I want you to know he's making you an offer you cannot refuse. God is making you the offer of heaven. Just look at what he says in verse 6. I will freely, as a gift, give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. You see, friends, this water of life, it'll quench our greatest thirst. It'll satisfy our deepest desires. Not because we live in an eternity, a, a new world without pain or death. But because it's coming home to an eternity of love with our Heavenly Father. Isn't there something that you want? To be forgiven by God. 
reconciled with God, loved by God, to come home to God. And all we have to do to receive that is to admit our thirst. Repent of trying to fix our lives and this world all by ourselves. And to trust that Jesus has done everything for us. Turn from our self-reliance. Trust in Jesus and then God will be our Father. And heaven will be our home. Surely that's an offer we can't refuse. But as our passage ends, it ends on a far darker note. For it shows us what will happen if we refuse God's offer. You see, the alternative to the water of life is a lake of fire. And that's a symbolic way of describing the realities of hell. In verse 8, John calls it the second death. You see, we all die a first death physically, but no, this second death, it'll be spiritual and it will be as eternal as heaven itself. And John warns us that whoever doesn't accept God's offer of heaven will themselves have chosen an eternity of hell. Our world is full of evil. And if we choose this world over the far better world that Jesus is offering, then that's exactly what we'll get. Friends, what is hell if not an eternity of the evils of this world? It's a terrifying thought. It's a fate I I wish on no one. And it's a fate that doesn't have to be yours if you accept God's offer of heaven. Please understand, God actually wants you to accept His gracious offer of heaven. He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to be there in the new creation. He wants you to be His daughter and His son. In Ezekiel 33, 11, look at what the Lord says. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? If you're not a Christian... That's exactly what God is saying to you today. Even for us who trust in Him already, each and every day, why would we choose death? Why would we choose hell? Why wouldn't we accept this offer of an eternity with God? You see, friends, at the end of the day, heaven and hell are real. The time is short and Jesus is returning. And when He returns, He will come either as our Saviour to bring us into heaven or He will come as our judge to send us into hell. It's a sobering reality. But He is extending to all of us the offer of heaven. And surely that's an offer we cannot refuse. All we have to do is turn from our self-reliance to trust that Jesus has done everything for us. So let me ask, if you haven't already, why not accept God's offer of heaven today? Why not make today the day that you accept Jesus' death for you? Because if you do, I can promise you, John can promise you, you can see it as clear as Revelation 21, when this world fades, God will welcome you home. And He will welcome you home into His new world. 
and you will have an eternity of unending joy, comfort, and love with God as your Father. Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, I know that this life is not easy. This life is riven with disappointment, with depression, with despair. And if we're brutally honest with ourselves, we might not say it to other Christians at church, but we've all felt it in our hearts, haven't we? Sometimes it'd be so much easier to give up on God. Don't. Don't give up. Hold on. Keep trusting in Jesus. He's worth it. For however many tears you might weep in this life, I promise you, John promises you, God promises you, on that last day, there'll be no more tears. Let me pray. Father of mercies, God of all comfort, you meet us in our deepest despair. You meet us in our darkness. You meet us in the futility and the meaninglessness of this world. How we long to breathe the air of heaven, to see you face to face, to look upon the one who saved us. How we long for that day, God. And so we ask, God, that as we look at that vision of eternity, you might spur us on. Keep us faithful. Knowing that one day, you will wipe away our every tear. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.